BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. A lot of news. George Herbert Walker Bush died. I'm not a big fan of speaking ill of the dead, at least before they've been buried. I'm going to move to Friday, our conversation about George Herbert Walker Bush. There are a number of things about his legacy that are quite troubling that seem not to be being discussed in the news. Mostly everybody's just kind of engaging in an orgy of, oh, my God, compare that man who, regardless of the terrible things he might have done, was probably not a sociopath and certainly not a pathological liar. When he did lie, it was very carefully constructed. But everybody's comparing him to Donald Trump right now, which is kind of funny uh, and kind of sad. But a lot to get through in our program today. But I want to start with General Motors. The way that Trump and the Republicans sold us their $5 trillion tax cut for rich people with a a trillion and a half of it in the first year, borrowing that money from the federal treasury in our names, and then passing that money out to the billionaire class in the United States, particularly those billionaires who have funded the Republican Party. You know, invest a few hundred million dollars in the the GOP. I think the Kochs put in, what, 600 million in the last election, maybe 400 million, whatever it was. And, you know, they probably got over a billion dollars in tax cuts. That's not a bad return on investment. Buying politicians now in the United States is the best investment you can make. So billionaires buy the politicians and the politicians come out. And this really started with Reagan in a big way. Reagan came out. He was working for back then. The currency was a little stronger. So they were multi-billionaires, not billionaires or multi-hundred millionaires. But basically, they owned Reagan, and they owned the Republican Party at that time, and they said to Reagan, hey, let's, let's create this thing we call trickle-down economics. Now, interestingly, Warren Harding ran on this same thing in 1920, on trickle-down economics. At that time, it was called horse and sparrow economics, because in 1910, most people rode horses. They didn't drive cars, right? And everybody who rode a horse owned a horse, knew that horses eat oats, their digestive systems are not 100% efficient, and so horse poop, horse patties, sparrows love to go peck through them looking for seeds, for, you know, undigested bits of oat that the sparrows can eat. And so literally the exact same economic philosophy that 
Ronald Reagan rolled out as brand new discovery in 1981 was what Warren Harding, or 1980 when he was running for president, was what Warren Harding ran for president on in 1920, the horse and sparrows theory, that if we feed more oats to the horses, there will be more poop for the sparrows. And so, you know, in other words, put money in at the top, cut taxes, Warren Harding, 1920, ran on the whole idea. You cut the top tax rate from 95%, which is where it was in 1920, down to 25%, which is where it was by 1922. Cut that top tax rate down. And as a consequence of that, uh, you know, the sparrows are going to get rich, or the sparrows are going to get a lot more food, and, uh, you know, who cares that the horses are getting really, really big. So, you know, Reagan just said, you know, it'll just trickle down. You know, if, if it all trickles down, then, you know, we, well, I say we produce a nation of peons, you know, it should be called a golden shower. But in any case, this was the, philo the philosophy that they were trying to sell. And uh, so GM comes out and they said, so this is from their, from their uh, most recent press release or, or news release or whatever it is, where they were announcing that they were going to lay off 14,000 people and shut seven factories in North America. And, of course, they're, they're moving that manufacturing to Mexico. With changing customer preferences in the U.S. and in response to market-related volume declines in cars, future products will be allocated to fewer plants next year. Now, what they're saying is that they're responding to weakening demand in the small and mid-sized car, mid car business, uh, as David uh, Akajian points out over at Daily Kos. And, and, you know, they're basically just explaining supply and demand. You know, it, it is not giving money to rich people that builds an economy. What giving money to rich people does is it exacerbates inequality. It, it makes the rich richer and it makes working class people poorer. That's all it does. The horse and sparrow theory was, <laughs> shall we say, horse poop. And so was trickle down. But the Republicans are still trying to sell trickle down. But have you noticed that in GM's announcement that they're going to build a new factory in Mexico and they're going to shut down seven factories in the United States. There's no mention of tax cuts. Yeah, we got a couple hundred million dollars from the tax cut. Thank you very much. We bought back our own stock with it. Thus jacking the pay of our senior executives, as Sherrod Brown pointed out on this program last week. You've got, you've got uh, you know, four senior executives at GM who took like millions and millions of dollars out of that tax cut. And, you know, a lot of the senior executives and, and stockholders are just, you know, making a fortune on it. So the bottom line is it's not, you know, taxes don't create demand. Taxes, you know, cutting taxes doesn't stimulate an economy unless you're cutting the taxes of people at the very bottom. And the fact of the matter is that about a third of all American workers are really not paying income taxes. They're, you know, they're not making enough money to pay income taxes. They're, they're paying uh, uh, they're, they're, they're paying several taxes at the top. They're paying, they're paying taxes at the top, but, uh, excuse me, they're paying taxes for social security and Medicare, but they are not paying taxes at all, <laughs> you know, in income taxes. So you got, you know, part of Obama's stimulus package was to cut the social security tax for either one or two years. And that actually boosted the economy immediately because all of a sudden people at the bottom of the pay scale who spend 100% of their income had 2% more income. 
But that's the only way you can use taxes to stimulate an economy in, in a way that is meaningful, lasting, and grows the economy. In fact, if you go back to 1944, this is David Leonhardt, a great piece in yesterday's New York Times, American Capitalism Isn't Working. And he points out the October 1944 edition of Fortune magazine. Now, this is just before the war is over. Just before the war is over. And William B. Benton, he, he uh, founded uh, Benton and Bowles, which is a major ad agency in the United States throughout the middle of the 20th century. And, you know, keep in mind, we had just experienced 15 years of depression and war. And Americans were worried that if the war, when the war ended, that we'd go back into the depression. Because the war was this enormous economic stimulus. I mean, you know, the federal government was pouring hundreds of, in today's dollars, billion, hundreds of billions of dollars into war material. And when I think it was about 700,000 men came home from, from World War II at the end of the war, and, uh, you know, there was concern that they would just be unemployed, the unemployment rate would jack back up and we'd be thrown back into a depression. So Benton writes, today victory is our purpose. Tomorrow our goal will be jobs, peacetime production, high living standards, and opportunity. And in fact, that's what they did, as Leonhardt points out. CEO took, CEOs took pay packages that, you know, they were making 10, 15, 20, at the most 30 times what their employees were making. Which today, you know, when CEOs are making 10,000 times what their employees are making, it just seems like, whoa, they did that, really? Yeah, they did that for better part of 50 years, 40 years. Middle, and, and the result of this was that middle class income rose because the people at the top, by the way, one of the reasons why they were taking low, low pay packages was because after they made about the equivalent of $3 million in today's dollars, their top tax rate went up to 95%, and, and, or 91%, I guess it was. And the result of that was that Throughout the 1950s and 1960s, and even the very early 1970s, the wages, the income, and the wealth of average working people was increasing faster than the top 1%. I mean, they, they were all going up, but the middle was growing the fastest. In other words, income inequality was actually declining as a result of that high tax rate. And the economy boomed. I mean, it just absolutely boomed. And then came Reaganomics. The only people you should worry about are the stockholders. Forget about the community. Forget about the, you know, uh, the, the customer. Forget about your impact on, on, the, on the nation. Forget, forget about your responsibility to the institution of the company itself. You can collapse it. You can sell it. You can, you can you know, suck it dry. Doesn't matter. Just maximize the value for your shareholders, the investor class, the millionaires and billionaires. That's, that's your only job. And to do that, you need to, you need to lobby for deregulation. You need to cut taxes. You need to have a union-free workplace. And you have to reduce wages and keep that minimum wage as low as you possibly can. And, you know, that, that was Reaganomics. And since 1979 to today, median weekly earnings have grown a miserly one-tenth of one percent a year. And in fact, Leonhardt writes, the typical American family today has a lower net worth than the typical family did 20 years ago. Life expectancy, shockingly, has fallen in this last decade. We are in the 40-something year of Reaganomics. 89, oh, it's uh, 38 years. 
37 years of Reaganomics. And it has devastated the middle class, the working class in the United States. And it continues to devastate our economy. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And now even Robert Reich, specifically because of this issue, this income inequality, is saying we're back where we were in 1929 and 2007. Get ready. You spend every day in your office chair. That's over 2,000 hours a year. So if you're spending all that time in the wrong chair, is it any wonder why you're sore and tired at the end of the day? Ditch that no-name, one-size-fits-all superstore chair and trade up to the X chair. When you feel the X chair difference, you'll understand. My X chair is the most stylish chair I've ever owned. Trust me, this is not your grandfather's office chair. Switching to the X chair, I'm more productive and have more energy. I love my X chair and you will too. X chair is now on sale for the holidays, so buy one for yourself and one for someone you love. X chair is now on sale for $100 off. So call 844-4X-CHAIR or go to xchairtom.com, that's xchairtom.com now, to save 100 bucks. And here's a special deal just for my listeners. Use the promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, and they'll even throw in a free footrest. Go to xchairtom or call 844-4X-CHAIR and use the code TOM for a free footrest. That's xchairtom.com, 844-4X-CHAIR. It's just all kinds of stuff happening all around us right now. But I want to start with uh, Professor Reich. Uh, Professor Robert Reich is the Chancellor's Professor of Public Policy at the uh, Richard Rhoda Goldman School of Public Policy, University of California, Berkeley, former U.S. Labor Secretary, co-founder Inequality Media, uh, Inequality Media, and the author of numerous books, including his latest, The Common Good. Inequalitymedia.org is the website. You can tweet him at R.B. Reich, R-E-I-C-H. Uh, Professor Reich, welcome back to the program. Hi, Tom. How are you? I'm great, and it's so nice to have you back on, and you are writing about uh, one of my favorite topics, uh, which is antitrust law, <laughs> which, you know, you say that and people's eyes glaze over, but this is, the, this is the, the bottom line for capitalism, for functional capitalism, is that there has to be competition in a marketplace. And it seems to me, I mean, you, you write specifically about, you know, the, the uh, e-business, which I want to get into, but, but uh, it seems to me like there's not literally a single industry left in the United States that is not dominated by somewhere between three and six companies and functionally a cartel. What does this do to us? How has this affected America? Well, it means higher prices, for one thing. Monopolies are breaking out all over. It also means uh, that innovation is being squelched, because once you have these big, big monopolies, it's very hard for smaller companies to get into the market with new ideas. And this is exactly uh, what's been happening in high tech. Now, I remember back in the uh, early 1980s, I remember reading an article, uh, and I hope I'm remembering this right, I mean, it's been a long time ago, but uh, reading an article in one of the papers, I think it was the New York Times, about how there was a debate in the uh, Reagan administration about the enforcement of antitrust laws. And, and then over the course of the next year or so, it seemed like they had basically just stopped enforcing the antitrust laws. And it led to this explosion, what we called mergers and acquisition artists, right? These M&A artists, you know, the masters of the universe. And they made movies out of it. And, and was that the beginning of the massive consolidation? And is it actually true that Reagan, by and large, stopped enforcing the antitrust laws and that we haven't seen any consequential enforcement of them since? Uh, yes, I, I think that's essentially it, Tom. Ronald Reagan and the people around him decided that the magic of the marketplace could be trusted, and they didn't see something that even Adam Smith, writing in the 18th century, the philosophical uh, figure who was the father of, of, of right-wing economics, 
uh, understood. That is, if you don't do anything, if you simply let big uh, companies get together and merge or acquire each other or become very dominant, uh, then they begin to set prices. And not only do they set prices, and here's something we have actually witnessed. I mean, we witnessed it in the 1890s in this country. Uh, we did something about it. That was the beginning of antitrust laws. Uh, but they they also have a political function. They, they use their dominant uh, economic wealth and position to affect politics, to undermine democracy. And we are seeing that, obviously, all over the place, uh, especially with the biggest companies that, that now, essentially, that their big money and the big money of a handful of wealthy people uh, are, are, the, are, the, are the key figures behind the Republican Party. And, and also, let's not uh, mince words. I mean, Democrats are also taking a lot of big money from the biggest corporations that are big because they essentially were allowed to get hugely huge, uh, big and powerful. Yeah. In, in 1944, the New York Times asked Vice President Henry Wallace if there were American fascists and if we needed to worry about them. And uh, his response was not what I'm assuming the Times was expecting. He basically called out cartelists uh, or cartelists or how, what, however that word is pronounced. And and he said that their goal, these he identified these as the American fascists, um, that their goal was to combine their economic power in a way that could seize political power and then use the combination of those two to keep the working man in eternal subjection. I think it was the last sentence of the article that he wrote for the New York Times. Is this, I've been referring to this for years as the cancer stage of capitalism uh, or unregulated capitalism. Are we there? Is that what's going on? Well, in many respects, we we certainly are. Uh, And what we have to revive antitrust law. You say people's eyes glaze over. Uh, Basically, this is government already has the tools to break up monopolies. Uh, Government used to do this. I mean, this is not some, we broke up Ma Bell, you know, the big uh, big telephone monopoly. Uh, And then Teddy Roosevelt, uh, at the turn of the last century, uh, broke up the Northern Securities Railroad Monopoly, and we broke up the Standard Oil Monopoly. And we, you know, these gigantic monopolies dominated America, the American economy, they dominated American politics, uh, and we can do it again. I mean, there's, there's uh, in fact, we have to do it again. Now, the, the breakup of those monopolies back in the, in the late uh, 19th, early 20th century were, uh, there was enormous popular support for that, in large part because these, these giant industries were engaging in union busting. I mean, you had open warfare between workers and, and management. Um, there's not, I, I don't perceive that, that level of antagonism toward big business in the United States right now. Or is it there and, and it's just not as, as visible? It's not spilling out into the streets. Well, that's not very visible. We don't have, unfortunately, much of a labor union movement left. I mean, in the private sector, fewer than 7% of the workers in the private sector unionizing. You know, in the 1950s and 60s, it was over a third. Uh, And when you have so few people who are unionized, uh, they don't have much of a voice. And we know American workers don't have much of a voice because uh, essentially wages for hourly workers, 85% of the economy, 85% of the workforce, uh, those wages have gone nowhere. Adjusted for inflation, they are exactly where they were about 30 years ago. And so these big monopolies are exerting huge power. Not only are they keeping prices higher than they should be, uh, 
uh, and they're also stifling innovation, making it difficult for small businesses to get in. Uh, but they are keeping wages down because they have so much power politically and economically over the economy. It seems that there there are a couple of ways that that uh, monopolies could be regulated or broken up or or altered. Um, having to do with either vertical or horizontal integration. I mean, for example, if, if you were to say to Facebook, you have to divest yourself of all these companies that you've acquired, right? Instagram and all these other things and just be Facebook. Um, would that be a start? But then you still have Facebook having essentially a, a national monopoly in whatever Facebook is, whatever you call that. Or if you were to say to Amazon, you know, uh, you can sell books, and you can sell garden tools, but you can't sell everything else. Or, I mean, how, functionally, how do you do this? Uh, well, you put your finger on a couple of things that could be done. Uh, you could say that these big, and, and Facebook and Amazon and Apple, and these, these, are, these are the companies that are, in many ways, the largest, most powerful in the country right now, and Google. Right. You could say to them, uh, you've gotta, you, you cannot acquire any more companies. You cannot uh, basically act as uh, a monopolist using your huge profits uh, to gobble up other companies and make, uh, and, and, and make it so that those companies can't function uh, as competitors. Um, you can also tell them that they have to license uh, some of their uh, proprietary, some of their, uh, uh, you know, some of their software uh, right. to other companies, uh, because uh, much of their monopoly power comes in their networks, and that network effect uh, becomes hugely uh, important only because they have software that nobody else can get. Uh, you know, you could say, for example, to Google, uh, your search engine is uh, is so dominant, nobody else can get in. You are abusing your power with the search engine. You're putting uh, the, on on the you know the first ten searches, uh, the various companies that you own. Well, you can't do that anymore. You've got to license your search engine um, uh, on the same terms to anybody else that wants to provide searches. Right. Uh, you know, there, there, are, there are many things that antitrust could do. Uh, the, the, the final, you know, nuclear option is basically to save these companies. You're being broken up. You know, you're going to be uh, busted up into, into 12 or 15 or 20 pieces. Uh, but that's not necessary. Uh, antitrust law is much more subtle than that. But it's, 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 got, to, it's got to happen, Tom. Otherwise, uh, these big companies, I mean, look what happened uh, recently. The, the United States... You know, uh, the New York Times revealed uh, just uh, recently that Facebook executives, they withheld evidence of Russian activity on the platform right. uh, far longer than previously disclosed. And they, they also employed a political opposition research firm to discredit critics. Now, how long is it before Facebook actually uh, threatens critics, threatens to use the huge amount of data it has, the huge information bank that it has, uh, to unload on critics uh, and and silence critics essentially. I mean, this is this is the the danger politically of monopolization. Professor Reich, we have just just uh, about a minute till we hit a hard break. Um, if if you know, Thomas Jefferson famously begged James Madison not to allow monopolies or uh, not to allow, he called them monopolies in commerce, and what he was talking about was patents and trademarks. Um, then later he wrote three years. That should be the maximum. Wouldn't another way to do this be to change the copyright and patent laws and, and shorten the time that a company can hold essentially that kind of a monopoly? 
Uh, yes, we, we certainly could do that. And many of the big, um, you know, Google and, and Facebook and, and the others, uh, they do depend on intellectual property, and that is their monopolies, and we could shorten uh, the time that they could have patents and copyrights. Uh, but to the extent that they are based on network effects, and by network effects, I simply mean that the more people who use it, the more other people have to use it because mm. everybody else is using it. Uh, that's not a patent problem. You really do have to uh, force the companies to license their proprietary technology and allow others to, to get involved. Right. That's a critical mass problem, essentially. Yeah. Professor Robert Reich, his latest book, The Common Good, the website inequalitymedia.org. R.B. Reich is the Twitter handle. Uh, Professor Reich, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you, John. Bye-bye. It's always great talking with you. I always learn something. Thank you very much. What are your thoughts on how we should be responding and what can we do with the economy? I mean, how, how, how do we communicate this to average working people? That when taxes are cut on rich people, it means that you are more likely to lose your job or to get lower pay over the long run. I mean, this just, you know, this has not, this is definitely not being communicated by the media, this, this whole message. And the average working person, you know, doesn't actually, I mean, you know, if you explain it to them, they go, oh, well, that makes perfect sense. Demand is what drives economies. Yeah, of course. And, you know, demand is wages. It's people buying things. And, and, and of course, that's going to drive an economy, and that's going to be a good thing. But, you know, the media has done just a, a totally pathetic job of communicating or trying to trying to communicate this message. B.J. Richardson tweets to me, horse and sparrow, it's like, let them eat poop. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I mean, that was the whole, I mean, you could Google it, the horse and sparrow theory. It actually goes back to the 1900s. I mean, to the 1800s, the 19th century. And so uh, it's, it's, just, it's just amazing that, that this is, you know, this, this whole issue is so poorly understood. That, that if, you, if you want to have an economy that is functioning, if you want to have an economy that works, that economy has to be based on people buying things. And in order for people to buy things, they have to have money. And they have to have money in excess of what they need for housing and food and health care and transportation. Because those things are fixed. You have to have those things. And it's a, you know, I mean, consider we're, we're living in a country where 20% of us don't even have health care, one of those essential things. And when 20% 20, 20 of us don't even have health care, you know, in other words, people are, are living so close to the edge that they can't even afford to buy health insurance. How do you expect those people to go on shopping sprees that are going to drive the economy? or to buy services that are gonna drive the economy. Now, I'm not just you know, advocating wasteful purchasing and spending for the sake of spending and making things for the sake of making things and all that kind of stuff. You know, we, can, we can have spending that is actually healthy for our economy. We can have spending that actually helps all of us. Cars that are, that are electric, that you know, are good for the environment, solar systems for houses. There's all kinds of stuff that's actually positive and productive rather than, you know, just buying junk.
This is very straightforward Econ 101. Economies are driven by demand. And demand is caused by wages. And if you keep wages down for 38 years, 37 years, you are going to keep demand down for 37 years. So, so people say, well, how come the stock market has gone up so much? Well, that's funny money. That's, that's got nothing to do with the real economy. Steve in Zimmerman, Minnesota. Hey, Steve, what's on your mind? I'm watching your program, and I agree with certain things you say about uh, working class people are not getting the increase in wages that they should have. I mean, we're behind from where we should be. Right, by about but, 300%. Yeah. Three, I think but 321% I, is how much productivity has gone up since Reagan went into office, and wages have gone up one-tenth of 1%. So all that gain in productivity has created an enormous amount of wealth, but it's all gone to the employer class. Yeah, you're right on on part of that. You know, uh, the the trade deals and sending all the working class jobs overseas, particularly to China, has really hurt middle class. That's right, and this was a program that Reagan started and uh, George Herbert Walker Bush largely put into place. Uh, well, you know, they, he, did he, they open that up? When Nixon was in office, he was big on Nixon. China Nixon tried it. Yeah, Nixon. Nixon opened the door. But I, I, I lived in China for a month in Beijing in uh, 1988, in November of 88, and I was studying acupuncture at a hospital there. And you know, Americans were starting to show up. This was the last year of the Reagan presidency, and Americans were starting to show up and negotiate things. But there was literally nothing going on. I mean, it, Beijing was a third world city. The the tallest buildings were five and six stories. Those were the literally the tallest buildings in Beijing. Everything was built out of brick. The air was filled with haze from little coal briquettes, piles of these coal bricks in in the middle of every street. So people would just go out and get them and bring them in. They heated only one room in the house throughout the winter. I mean, it, it was poor, poor, poor. There were no cars on the streets. I, I stood on Tiananmen Square, and one car would go by maybe every 10 minutes. It was just a sea of black bicycles. That was just as it was cracking open. Now, I mean, you've, we've all seen pictures of Beijing. What did you disagree with me about? I have benefited from the tax cuts. I mean, okay. I, this year I've seen in my... I'm retired, but my wife is working, and she has seen right. an increase in her take-home pay and stuff. So it's not all the... Sure. You know, the really rich people, but run this as a logic game. Let's say that, that you're making a hundred grand a year and you're paying twenty five thousand a year in taxes, your take home is seventy five thousand. Your employer knows that you're willing to work for seventy five thousand dollars a year, basically. And let's mm -hmm. say that your taxes get cut to zero and now you're making a hundred thousand dollars from that employer. But that employer knows mm -hmm. that you'll work for seventy five thousand dollars a year. What do you think the employer is gonna do over the next two or three years? Trying to get you back to work for seventy five thousand dollars. That's a year. right, your wages are gonna go down. When the taxes are cut on working people, the result is over a period of time, if you look at the tax tables, you'll see it takes two or three years, but over a period of time, those workers will be laid off and replaced with workers who are willing to work for less, or they themselves will be for, essentially forced into a position where they work for less, because employers pay based on take home. So tax cuts for rich people actually put more money in their pocket, because they have control over their income. But tax cuts for working people who work for other people Tax cuts over time will cause wages to go down. Period of the fastest wage growth in the United States was the 40s, 50s, and 60s, when we actually had relatively high taxes on working people too. Reagan cut taxes on working people as well as on the rich. And what it did is it drove down wages almost immediately. 
So that's the problem, Steve. Yeah, you might have an extra 500,000 bucks in your paycheck right now, but that means that two years from now, three years from now, you're probably gonna be working for 500 or $1,000 less. Steve, thanks for the call and thanks for watching Free Speech. We'll be right back. Riduzone. If you struggle to lose weight, listen carefully. Riduzone works. I've never before endorsed a weight loss product, but I've seen the result firsthand with my brilliant wife, Louise, who, like so many, has had her share of diet frustrations. Losing weight is hard, right? Louise heard about Riduzone. She did her homework, learned it's FDA accepted, and that it helps us lose weight in a revolutionary way. Riduzone comes out of university research that discovered a molecule that helps regulate appetite. When it's out of whack, we're always hungry and crave foods we shouldn't eat. And good luck losing weight when you're already starving on day one. Louise tried Riduzone. She looks amazing. And I've never, never seen her this excited about a weight loss product. Listen, when diet and exercise aren't enough and you want to lose the weight you've been struggling to lose, get non-prescription Riduzone. Go to tryriduzone.com and use the promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, to receive up to 65% off on your order and free shipping. That's tryriduzone.com, promo code TOM. Andy in Seattle. Hey, Andy, what's up? Hey, Tom. I was calling to let you know that in this discussion about trickle-down economics, I read that this was a literal joke, trickle-down, actually coined by Will Rogers, who was mocking President Hoover's Depression-era recovery efforts. Oh, really? And the, quote was, the quote was, money was all appropriated for the top in the hopes that it would trickle down to the needy, unquote. And that comes from the Pacific Standard in an article by Jared Keller, K-E-L-L-E-R, in June of 2015, in an article called The IMF Confirms That Trickle-Down Economics Is Indeed a Joke, that's, an Actual Joke. That's, that's amazing, <laughs> an actual joke. And this, was, this must have been uh, in the late 20s, early 30s that Will Rogers said this. Yeah, I well, yes, he, that's when he was so popular. I'm not, it doesn't yeah. say, but then it goes on to explain how then Roger's joke became economic dogma, <laughs> um, thanks mostly to Reagan. That is incredible. Andy, thanks for sharing that with me. That's a great story. Yes, and I, I also just wanted to say thanks for all the work you and your staff do, you know, finding and digesting volumes of legitimate information so that we can be so easily educated on so many things. So well, thank you. Thank you, Andy. I, I appreciate the okay. acknowledgement. We Bye -bye. work hard here. Andy, thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to KBCS. Wendell in New Kensington, Pennsylvania. Hey, Wendell, thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. What's on your mind today? Pleasure. Hey, why do working class people vote Republican and think that if they keep voting Republican, things are going to work out? And by doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results, I think that's crazy. Well, some of them are voting Republican because they are afraid that the Democrats are going to take away the, their guns. Others are voting Republican because they think that the Democrats are going to let their son turn gay. Others are voting Republican because they're afraid the Democrats are going to help black people reach economic and social and educational equality with white people. Some of them are voting Republican because... They think that the, the Republican Party is the party that is going to, you know, kick the ass of everybody around the world and, and you know, have a strong military. Um, I think the slice that is voting Republican, of working people who are voting Republican because they think that the Republican economic policies are actually going to help them, is probably fairly small. What do you think? Uh, to me, I just think that, you know, if you have to cheat and lie to get elected, then there's a problem with your uh, program. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Well said. Well, nobody believes it. Yeah, you know? and 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 that's the thing. I, you know, this is this is why the Republicans they they were going they were entirely planning on running on those tax cuts in 2018. They in the in the midterm elections, the congressional elections, they were going to the argument that they were going to make to people. We know this because we've got the the, the leaked documents from the Republican consultants and all these guys. They were going to come out to the American people and say, hey, we cut taxes by $5 trillion over the next 10 years, and that tax cut is going to boost the economy, and it's going to be a wonderful thing, and you should vote for us. And what they figured out, you know, within three or four months of the tax cut passing, was that more than 70% of Americans and more than 60% of Republicans had figured out that the, 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 the Republican tax scam was just that. It was a scam. And so that's when they started saying, oh, and they were also going to campaign on, you know, let's end Obamacare. And then they figured out that the majority of Americans had figured out that Obamacare was actually reducing costs and protecting them from insurance companies, kicking them off the rolls because they had a pre-existing condition. So what were they left with? Oh, my God, there's brown people coming through Mexico. Run! I mean, that's basically all they had. Look at look at what these people campaigned on in 2018, Wendell. It wiped them out. And, and it's exactly what you're saying. People are figuring out their lies. So, you know, the, the question is then, where do we go from here? How does, how does that work out? And what, what do the Republicans do next? And, Wendell, I... I I, I'm not sure what they've got to run on anymore, and, and they're and they're trying to and they're trying to pretend like everything's good. Trump is fine. We didn't lose that many seats. You know, we still control the Senate. Uh, and and uh, meanwhile, the president is tweeting that Roger Stone is a good guy, deserving of a pardon. I mean, he, that's implicit. He's not explicitly saying that. He said that about Manafort the other day. Um, uh, he's just tweeting Roger Stone is you know a good guy because I'll never testify against Trump. It's bizarre. Wendell, where do you think this They're is going to end? Beginning of their career. These people have been criminals since they started, and they'll be criminals when they're in jail. Yeah, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. What we've got are, are grifters and hustlers. Wendell, thanks a lot for the call. It's great to hear from you. On the line with us is former Congressman Chris Shays, the Republican who represented Connecticut's 4th District for years and years. He's now a fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School of Politics. His Twitter handle is CShays, S. H-A-Y-S. Congressman, welcome to the program. Thanks. I need to correct something. I was at the Institute of Politics for the opportunity to be three months there, but I'm not connected with Harvard right now. Oh, okay. Great. So, first of all, as a Republican, how do you view what's going on with Donald Trump? Well, as an American, I view what's going on with Donald Trump as a disaster. But, uh, you know, Donald Trump is everything my parents taught me not to be and everything we taught our daughter not to be. I mean, he's an anathema to me as president. But having said that, if the Democrats spend their time going after impeachment, they will make the same mistake Republicans made, and that is they'll spend two years, the government will basically be shut down, will get nothing done, and they'll lose their reason for people wanting to vote for Democrats. I think you're completely wrong. You know, in Bill Clinton's case, they went through, what, 10 different, quote, scandals, you know, from the land deal to the travel gate to, yeah. I mean, it was, it was a, an impeachment in search of a cause, and they ended up with a BJ in the Oval Office. I, Everybody I, I, in America Tom, was Tom, looking at that Tom, going, come on, give me a break. This is like Tom, Nixon. Tom, Tom, slow down. I voted against impeachment. I was one of four people who voted against impeachment. I thought the impeachable offenses weren't proven and the proven offenses weren't impeachable. That's not my point. My point is that people are looking to Democrats not just to focus on impeaching Donald Trump. Do hearings 
on what he's doing, expose what he's doing. But I'll tell you, once you go down the road of impeachment, nothing gets done. Well, I think they can walk and chew gum at the same time. And I don't see why nothing would have to get done. But, you know, over the next two years, I think it's extremely unlikely that the Republicans in the Senate, even if the House were to return, you know, a bill of impeachment, which only requires a simple majority in the Senate, you've got to get 66 senators. And I just I don't see that happening unless the well, evidence. You're making my argument. That's the whole point. In yeah, well, the end, it won't it won't achieve what you want to achieve. My, my caveat, though, is unless the evidence is, I mean, right now, the on-the-record crimes that have been documented in the New York Times and the Washington Post that Trump has committed are roughly analogous to what Richard Nixon was impeached for or was, you know, drew up articles of impeachment. He resigned, yeah. what he resigned over. And I think it's going to get a hell of a lot worse. But let's talk about Republican policies sure. and, and politics for a second. For years on this program, I've had a running contest, essentially. My assertion in simple form is that ever since the Republican Party took a major turn with the Nixon administration away from the classic Republican conservative politics of Dwight Eisenhower, my father's Republican Party, my dad right. was Republican until the day he died. Yeah. And we grew up, you know, debating politics my whole life. Ever since the Republican Party went down the kind of Nixon road, the where's the money, where's the power road, I have not been able to find anything that has passed a Republican legislature, been signed into law by a Republican president, any single piece of legislation that primarily benefits average working people or poor people in the United States. I can't find, you know, I, I've offered to send an autographed book to anybody who can name one piece of legislation in the last two decades. Can you? Yeah. Well, it depends what you think help Americans. I thought getting our financial house in order and balancing the budget for years helped all Americans. Well, Bill Clinton did that and Jimmy Carter did that, but they were the no, last, no, uh, the only two down. presidents but, in the last 30 years to offer a balanced but, budget. Bill Clinton and the Republicans did it. We did it together. I never introduced a bill without finding a Democrat to co-sponsor it. So I'm, I believe that you got to turn to both sides of the equation. But right now, as far as I'm concerned, the Democrats are way over to the left, the Republicans are way over to the right, and we carved out the middle, and we don't have people talking with each other. That makes no sense. You say way over to the left. The last Gallup poll showed that 71% of Americans, 52% of Republicans, support Medicare for all. The vast majority of Americans want Social Security strengthened. What did the Republican budget do? It cut Social Security. They want Medicare and Medicaid strengthened. What did the Republican budget do? It cut Medicare. Yeah, you're, you're, you're leaving out. And the vast majority of Americans want us to get our financial house in order, too. So, I mean, there's a lot of things they want, and some of it conflicts. And the vast majority of Americans want taxes raised. I mean, you say get your house in order, and what you're talking about is cutting social spending, you know, cutting the federal no, budget. I, 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 I say I get our house in order, both. and I'm saying repeal the Reagan tax cuts. It's the Reagan tax cuts that created this massive imbalance. You look at every country around the world when the top tax rate on income over roughly $3 million a year in today's dollars is above 50%. What happens is the middle class grows and the economy stabilizes. When the top tax rate goes below 50% on income over $3 million a year, right. and then what happens is you end up with oligarchs. And that's what has happened since the Reagan tax cuts. But the point I was making is if you go through voted, the list voted, of, of voted, far voted left positions. Demo voted by Democrats. No, there was a bipartisan agreement with Democrats. The Reagan tax cuts were bipartisan. Oh, I know. Reagan did a marvelous sales job. You know, he was a very good actor and a very good salesman. And he sold so, us on this, so, so this whole trickle down thing that, that we all know now is BS and it's killing our country. But my point was where I was trying to go with this is that if you look at all of the issues that, for example, Bernie Sanders ran on, 
every single one of them. I defy you to name one single issue that doesn't have more than 50% support among the American public. How can you call that far left? Okay, when the Republicans, when we did the contract with America, we did 10 things on opening the first few weeks and 10 things in the first few months. Every one of them had 70% support of the American people. 70% support. Six of those things, I wrote a couple of pieces on this back in the day, six of those 10 items in the contract with America pointed back to tax cuts for rich people. And we got had by Newt Gingrich and his PR machine and then, you know, the billionaires. I get it. But I don't think that we're being had by let's build infrastructure. Let's green America's energy sources. Let's clean up our air and water. Let's give everybody health insurance. Let's let kids go to college for free. I mean, you could call that far left, but that's the middle of America right now, Congressman. No, I honestly don't think it's the middle of America. I mean, so you think I Americans think like the fact that their kids, that we have $1.6 trillion in student debt that literally did not even exist 20 years wait, ago? Wait, wait, wait. No, but I don't think they want debt the other way either. I mean, we have, what do you mean? We have a $20 trillion deficit that has been created by both Republicans and Democrats. No, come on. Ronald Reagan came into office. The national no, debt no, was no. $800 billion. He tripled it. And, and what happened under President Obama? He doubled it. He had no choice. I mean, wait, he wait, had wait, these wait. two wars that George W. Bush lied us into and this massive tax cut that George W. Bush gave us. If those two wars and that tax cut hadn't happened, the Clinton surplus would have paid off your national debt. He could have ended the war. But the other thing about the national debt, this slow is... Slow down, slow down. The thing that I have a problem with, and I have a lot of respect for you, is you are willing to accuse one side of one thing but not acknowledge what the other side did. You had a president for eight years who had a chance to end the war and didn't. You're right. No, I could give you a long list of complaints that I have about the Obama administration and about the Clinton administration. I'd be glad to go through that list with you. But, you know, I'm not sure what purpose it would serve you know, in the context of this debate. Yeah, Obama should have no, ended no, those wars. Absolutely. No, totally no. agree with you. What, but what my I, point about the debt, if sure. I could just make this point real quick. Sure. You dig back into this stuff in the 1970s and 1980s, and what you find is that the voices who were screaming about the national debt were almost all New York bankers. Because the place right now in the world where you can most safely park your money is U.S. Treasuries. U.S. Treasuries are, you know, our debt is also private savings and corporate savings. It is the safest savings in the world. And those banks in New York want that money in their vaults rather than in the federal treasury. One of the ironies, though, was after we balanced the budget for four years, Republicans started to complain that we were bondholders weren't having opportunities because we weren't issuing as many My bonds. Point. Because, My point. Yeah. I mean, Japan's got a public debt, a national debt right now that's 216, I think, 217 percent of GDP, has been for right. almost two decades. And you know, it's not hurting Japan's economy. It, as long as there's demand for your debt, you don't have a crisis. I mean, we're having a problem well, now that our payments on the debt, particularly if interest rates go up another point, are going to equal our Pentagon budget, which is well, insane. That, that's scary. That's scary. Yeah. But I think that's a reasonable reason to be concerned about the national debt. But just the existence of a national debt, that's actually a good thing. The only time that the national debt in the United States has been paid off was during the Andrew Jackson administration. He paid off the national debt and it produced, as a consequence, it produced the longest and deepest depression in the history of the United States. Yeah, well, we cut down spending. You're right. But the bottom line to this whole talk, in my judgment, is we're not going to solve these problems if it's a one-party solution. Okay. And, I mean, I have tremendous regret. I mean, I'm right now a Republican without a party. Yeah, I get <laughs> I that. Mean, yeah, I, I, I just, it, if my dad was alive today, he'd be in shock. Yeah, no, I am. I am just totally depressed. 
I always wanted to be in government. From third grade on, I loved reading about our American history. I then thought when I was in high school and college, I might run for public office. I had 34 years of an opportunity. I thought our responsibility was to listen, learn, help, teach, and lead, and then listen again. And it's not happening anymore. Yeah. Former Congressman Chris Shays from Connecticut. C. Shays is the Twitter handle. Congressman, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Great talking with you. Me too, actually. With all the recent news about online security breaches, it's hard not to worry about where my data goes. Making an online purchase or simply accessing your email could put your private information at risk. You are being tracked online by social media sites, marketing companies, and your mobile and internet provider now that the Republicans have destroyed net neutrality. That's why I decided to take back my privacy by using ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN has easy-to-use apps that run seamlessly in the background of my computer, phone, and tablet. Turning on ExpressVPN protection only takes one click. ExpressVPN secures and anonymizes your internet browsing by encrypting your data and hiding your public IP address. Protecting yourself with ExpressVPN costs less than $7 a month. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash Tom. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S vpn.com slash T-H-O-M for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com slash Tom to learn more. Kevin in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Hey, Kevin, what's on your mind today? Okay. Listening to you, you mentioned something about what Republicans have done for poor people, you know. And working people. I don't know if you, working people, right. One of the things, and I'm not a Republican, I'm a Democrat, stone Mm -hmm. cold, always have been. But Richard Nixon did start the earned income tax credit. Right, but he had a Democratic Congress. Yeah. So that's not uh, legislation that was initiated in a Republican Congress and passed with a Republican president. Okay, well, he just went along with it, is what you said. Well, I don't know. I'd have to go back and look at the bill. I'd, I wasn't paying attention back in the 70s and you know, when that happened, and, and I haven't done right. any research on it. But I do know that the Republicans did not control the House of Representatives until the middle of the Clinton administration. I mean, literally from the end of the Great Depression, there were two little blips when Republicans held the House for one congressional cycle, one in 46, 47, and the other one, I think it was in 56. And you know, other than that, the Democrats continuously controlled the House of Representatives right up until 19, I think it was 96. So, And there is one other thing that happened under the Nixon regime, too, and you might be, I'm glad that I didn't know that, that, that you're right. But uh, Section 8, the Section 8 program. Section 8 housing. Oh, that's interesting. I, I don't know anything about that program, frankly. I, that's, yeah. that's an area where I should do I some know, research. In your, it, it, I, I love when you do the books, but there was, and how I know is I was studying human services back in 2011, and there was this great textbook. I'm sorry, I don't know the name of it. And it went all the way up to Obama, and it specifically mentioned everything every administration did for people in the margins. And that's where I got that from. So I have to research it, and I've got to go back to Harrisburg and find that book. But it's a great textbook. If you track it down, let me know. I'd love to see it. I certainly will, and I thank you. Okay, thank you, Kevin. Great to hear from you. George in Alsip, Illinois. Hey, George, what's up? Hi, Tom. Your interview with former Congressman Shays is second one that I heard, and I was interested in the differing approaches between you and Bill Press. Of course, the former congressman got an easier run of it on Bill's show because they're longtime old friends. But 
I think it's a tribute to the training and education you've given all of us listeners over the years that I was listening to the earlier interview, and I was analyzing and ticking off the things that he was saying that were typical Republican belief or can't that have been disproven over the years that you've enlightened us on. And I know it's one of your strongest rules that we don't criticize people who've been on the show who are no longer there to defend themselves. But there are blind spots in even the most decent, bipartisanly oriented Republicans like Congressman Shays. I don't know Chris Shays personally, but when Louise and I lived in the Gangplank Marina in Washington, D.C., we lived on a boat in the marina there. The boat next to us, which was not being lived in, it was just a pleasure boat, was Chris Shays' boat. And I'm sure I ran into him a couple of times down there. In fact, I remember seeing him once on the boat, but you know, we never really connected or talked. But everything I heard from everybody who lives down in the marina is that he's a really decent guy. I have no reason to think him guilty of any kind of perfidy. And I'm kind of scratching my head because, you know, they reached out to us and said, hey, you want to have a conversation? And obviously they reached out to Bill Press, too. And I'm wondering why Chris Shays is doing this right now. Does he have a book coming out or is he thinking of making a political comeback or is he just bored and, you know, this will be fun? I don't know. I'm kind of curious. I know. I was wondering the same things myself because I kept waiting for somebody to mention a book. It it never came up. Yeah, typically that's the case. So. To mention specifically was that he recounted how if you don't stick to a, the straight and narrow in either party, you're going to get primaried. Well, this is more of a problem for Republican office holders than Democrats. Right. But he talked about how when he finally decided after several years of hedging to back school vouchers, that the teachers' unions actively campaigned against him. They had supported him in the past, but he was very aggrieved that this special interest was opposing him. Is this what he told Bill Press? Yeah. Yeah. And I just thought to myself, how can you, you know, the term special interest came about during the Teddy Roosevelt years, and it was about oligarchs and and people who created monopolies. You know, groups of working people like teachers are not a, quote, special interest, unquote, Mm -hmm. you know? that they're the heart and soul of this country, the people who do the educating and the the teaching and get all of us up and started and going for our lives. And that's not the same thing as the Koch brothers. Yeah, or just any for-profit company, actually. And the teachers' union is a nonprofit, as all unions are, so. You thought it's democratic. Yeah, yes, you're right. It's a democratic institution that elects its leadership. And if its leadership doesn't do what its members want, it gets changed. And unions are very aware of that. George, thank you. Thank you for all the points and fascinating conversation. Let's check in with uh, Bob Nay with Talk Media News and find out what's going on in the world today. This report brought to you by Goats for the Old Goat.com and loving what you do. Ellen Ratner's new book, Bob is the author of Sideswiped and former member of Congress uh, representing Ohio. Hey, Bob. Hello, Tom. So uh, what's what's going on in the news today? Well, a lot of things, of course, uh, as you know, uh, Bush 41 uh, is going to be lying in state until Wednesday morning in the Capitol, mm-hmm. and then there'll be a service at the National Cathedral. And he's uh, uh, gotten a lot of support both sides of the aisle. Of course, Michelle Obama has canceled her uh, book tour. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was a European book tour, actually. Yeah, she was to. really rolling along, too. She was drawing right. huge crowds and very, very, right. very successful. But, but it's the right, right thing to do, you know. Right. And so she's going to attend the funeral. 
a story that's uh, you know a lot of things are getting to the front page because of you know the death of uh, of President Bush. But I think that the one article I found interesting, the headline is Medicare for All, the big minefield for Nancy Pelosi. Mm-hmm. And um, but when you look at it, I think it's only a minefield if internally the Democratic side begins to argue with each other, in a sense. Agreed. And there's, right. It, and that's when I say, well, there's a minefield only if, it's, if they put their own mines in, in the earth. And the well, reason the, I say that... Hmm? I was just going to say, it seems to me, and I mean, you were a former member of Congress. Speak to this, please. It seems to me that there is about half the Democratic Party that doesn't take corporate money and about half the Democratic Party that does. And the pharmaceutical industry does not want Medicare for all because that means that they're going to be confronting one large bargaining block for drug prices. The for-profit hospital industry doesn't want Medicare for all for the exact same reason. The doctor industry, essentially, and the AMA don't don't want Medicare for all. In fact, they sponsored Reagan's, uh, you know, screed against Medicare, period, back in the 60s. Um, none of these guys want Medicare for all, and the health insurance companies, of course, they're you know they they're out of business. They don't want Medicare for all, and and these these four uh, dimensions of the health industry in the United States represent literally billions of dollars a month in profits, just in profits. So for right. them to skim a couple million or even a hundred million dollars a month off the top and drop it into a massive publicity campaign and drop it into million dollar contributions to each one of the members of Congress that they that they are able to influence and, and not just contributions, but lobbying efforts as well, um, seems like a certainty. And 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 if half the Democratic Party is vulnerable to corporate messages, it's going to be a real challenge. Is that what you're talking about, Bob? Well, yes, because it's really not going to be up to the Republicans, you know, with the Democratic side having control of the chamber, if they have internal discussions and they, and they get a mantra and they realize uh, the, the great ability they will have to do something that would be very hard for the Republicans to reject. Look, the Republicans uh, had the Democratic side on the run, as you know, over the health care bill, because a lot of members that were running a couple of years ago let it be that way. They got into that trap of trying to defend something or saying, well, we need to change it when they should have just said, we did it, we supported it, people needed health care. Then the Republicans, uh, very effectively by the Democratic uh, you know, a planning structure and, and the, you know, the campaign structure put the Republicans behind the eight ball this year in a, in a major way. Now, some people are saying, well, the Democratic side really shouldn't take care of this because they'll let the Republicans off the hook. And that's not the way to approach this. They have an opportunity to put everybody behind the, you know, uh, the, the gun here in the Senate in particular. Look, there's two different proposals. One is Medicare for all, period where you would apply the Medicare system to you know, everybody. And then the second is a partial of 50 to 64 years old, you know, that, that stopgap uh, group that... Maybe, isn't that, the, isn't that have... the first year of a four-year phase-in on Bernie's proposal, or is there a standalone right. proposal just to lower the age? Well, yes, there's, there's actually a couple of proposals. Now, okay. Bernie Sanders supported this originally, for example, the 50, you know, well, he supported both, you know, single player, but he supported that. And the person who, I think I'm correct, I don't want to be wrong, but Joe Lieberman removed that provision out of the original health care bill because of the insurance companies in Connecticut. Yep, absolutely. Obvious, okay? So he removed it, and that would have helped uh, a lot of people, and actually would have helped the entire health care program and the financing and the funding. So, but if you look at the statistics of this, they are staggering. 
Uh, and, and of course, keep in mind with the, with the uh, survey done with Kaiser, uh, the statistics show that and these are Republican people included, obviously, that 77 percent would support the 50 to 64. 77 percent right. of the people polled. And if you look at the other statistics I've got here in front of me, they're also good. Uh, on, on the other program, the lowest that came in was at 44 percent, and that's where they weren't sure if it was a plan that had too much you know, regulation in it. Right. But otherwise, the stats here are staggering. So, yeah, and one, again, of these, one of these think tanks just ran the numbers on these, by the way, and right. uh, they just published it. Uh, the first decade of Medicare for All the United States overall would save $5.1 trillion. Right. Now, that's $5.1 trillion that's not going to be going to the profits of pharmaceutical industries, um, health care, health insurance industries, and for-profit hospitals. Um, and so they're going to fight like hell to save that $5 trillion. Right. In the history of Republicans on Medicare, this makes it touchy. So if they keep their act together, I think they've got everybody uh, in a box. They being the Democrats. For a good reason. The yeah. Democratic side for yeah. a good reason. Very interesting. Bob Ney, author of Sideswipe. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, Tom. Great talking with you. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Rich in Cedro Woolley, Washington. Hey, Rich, what's on your mind today? What I'm wondering about is, are the Republicans ever going to be willing to admit that from Hondurans on our border to Putin at our doorstep, this is Reaganomics. Reaganism coming home to roost. Yeah. Well, that's the part of the story, you know, particularly when you combine that with the latest news that the suicide rate in the United States has gone up pretty radically in the last 10 years. We're looking at end-stage Reaganism, end-stage Reaganomics. It's, it's been slowly and gradually devastating the American working class, and now it's reached the point where it's actually killing the American working class, and the American working class is killing itself. And the media has not put two and two together to figure out that this is the direct result of Reagan's economic policies, which are being continued by Trump. In fact, if anything, put on steroids with this tax scam last year. And I agree with you, Rich. It's, it's, just, it's just a matter of time before the American people figure this out. But the media is going to have to figure it out first. Rich, thanks a lot for the call. It's always nice to hear from you. What a fascinating day, huh? It's just, it just flew by. There is so much going on, and it's such an extraordinary and important time for us to be alive. You know, we're right on the cusp of so many things, some really good, you know, some major awakenings from the Me Too movement to racial concerns to positive economic messages, democratic socialism rising around the world. On the other hand, you've got fascism rising around the world, and then there's climate change kind of looming over all of it. Important stuff that we need to keep focused on. So, you know, don't forget, politics, democracy, it's not a spectator sport. It requires you. Tag your it. We'll see you tomorrow. to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.